Good day, everybody. Um, today we have the Topco Business Unusual podcast, and I'm joined today by the bubbly Brett Lobsher, the CEO of Tencent Africa. I think he's the managing director of uh, Dukes. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Brett. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me on. Pleasure. So, I mean, we're in a strange time. In a strange surrounding, uh, we were talking earlier and we were just discussing how I've realized my three children, three boys, are gaming addicts and one has ambitions of not being a lawyer or an accountant but being a gamer. He says there's lots of money to be made. There certainly I'm, is. I mean, uh, the, the way the, the whole online competitive gaming environment has exploded over the last few years is quite phenomenal. And I think... Uh, you know, as you say, the crazy times we're stuck in uh, just facilitate uh, a movement toward these things even more, you know. So, I mean, we were talking earlier and you were saying that you started playing on the Sinclair, I think it was 64, right? But uh, Yeah, the Sinclair ZX Spectrum originally. That was the first uh, computer that, uh, that we got as a family when I was uh, 12 years old or so. You're going to give your age away now. But... Yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember I was living in New Zealand and it was my, it must have been my 10th birthday. My, my dad came back from England with an Amstrad 64. And he, and he said to me at the time, because he came back about day after my birthday, he said, this is for you and it's your birthday present. But I, and, and I've got a, a younger brother and an older brother. My older brother sort of obviously didn't hear that. And he sort of took on this, this uh, Amstrad and, and you're mentioning that you got magazines and your programming. I mean, it was a different world then. It was. I mean, it was. Uh, it was very, very early days. I think the some of the very earliest uh, sort of personal computers, if you could even call them that, um, uh, that were available back then. So this would have been in the early 1980s. Um, and and the the way they worked was was really radically different, you know. So for, to me, it's quite laughable seeing my kids get frustrated because they have to wait, uh, you know, half an hour to download a, a ten gig file. Where uh, you know what we were talking about earlier is my dad used to buy these um, these magazines which came from the UK, and they would have all the code in basic. Um, literally printed out on the pages and the way you would play the game is by hand typing the code in and it would take hours just to get the code uh, into the machine then you would have to debug it yourself before you could get the game running um, and then and then mostly play for 15 minutes and decide it was a rubbish game and then do it all over again you know so <laughs> the times have changed for sure I actually remember many fights breaking out amongst our family. My, my children seem to be a bit more organized. They have an hour on and an hour off. Um, did you have any siblings that you had the same challenges with or, or, or was it just you having absolute fun? Uh, it, it, it was me. I have a, a younger sister. She's uh, two years younger than me, but she had zero interest in that at the time, which I was grateful for. The only uh, the only thing that made it really difficult is uh, these uh, these uh, computers had to plug into the TV. Remember, um, there yeah. was no separate monitor, and so uh, you were always competing for TV time because we only had the one TV in the house, uh, which I think was pretty normal. Um, you know, for uh, middle class people back then. Um, so you, I had to steal TV time whenever I could. 
And that must have been enjoyable. So, I mean, and it's another thing. I mean, that was many, many moons ago. So if we reflect back to where things were computing and, um, you know, w what we were doing and we look at now and what our children are doing, what, I mean, how vastly different is the future in 30 years going to be from, is, is it something that we can imagine? Is it something beyond what we think? Is it Star Trek type stuff? I think, look, it's very hard uh, to predict 30 years ahead in, in any context. Um, but I think especially now, you know, there's there's some fascinating perspectives on, on uh, technology that are all driven by the central kind of idea that technology uh, grows exponentially. You know, this is the the idea of Moore's law. So, mm -hmm. um, and Moore's law, which uh, people have been predicting the demise of for many years, seems uh, still to be going, and uh, and and kind of growing at, at a similar rate. And so, you know, just to just by way of reminder, the the idea, the central idea behind Moore's law, um, which was put forward by Gordon Moore, one of the founders of Intel, uh, is is simply that the number of transistors on a on a, an integrated circuit would double roughly every every eighteen months. And that translates into a doubling of computer power. So, and it's been consistent for uh, more than 50 years where we've, we're doubling computer power every 18 months. Um, and I think for, for once in, in human history, because of this coronavirus uh, pandemic we're going through, uh, people have a much, much closer understanding of what exponential growth actually means. Um, so, it, it, the, the big problem with exponential growth is as you start reaching these uh, really, really uh, extreme levels of computing power, it becomes harder to understand what the change means going forward. So 30 years from now, uh, I mean, if, if you think 30 years back, we were just at the very, very beginning, early stages of this, you know, I mean, uh, a pocket calculator, uh, a little a calculator that kids use at school now is significantly more powerful than that Sinclair Spectrum of mine was. It had 16 kilobytes of RAM. That was it. Um, and a, an extremely, so if I remember correctly, it was like a four hertz uh, processor or four kilohertz processor or something like that. Now we've got, uh, you know, processors in our machines. Uh, if you have a, a big desktop computer, you've got uh, a processor that runs at nearly four gigahertz with eight cores running in parallel doing that. And so the, the levels of power we have are um, radically different now. Um, and then, of course, if you start adding in all of the, the new domains within computing. So uh, an example that came to mind immediately is virtual reality um, and how rapidly that's evolving. Uh, it's anybody's guess where we'll be in 30 years from now, but I, I think, uh, you know, something like the Ready Player One universe is probably not too far from the truth. Ready Player One, I haven't heard of that before. You're gonna have to tell me about that. But I mean, it's, what I also understand Moore's law is that there's a, a halving of price every 18 months as well. So it makes it yes. really interesting in terms of making these this, these technologies more abundant um, and changing the business models. But I mean, I also understand. So it, like the way I was taught about Moore's law, it's almost like a chess t table. You got 30 different units or a calendar month. And it's almost like if you had one single grain of sand or one grain of rice, and if you double it every day or every year, whatever you want, it would come out after 30 to being over a trillion. Is that correct? Is it over a trillion? 
the doubling uh, it's um, a, a massive uh, amount that it comes up to yes I, i'm not sure if if uh, i'm not sure of the exact numbers but i think the old story goes if you eventually did get to the 64 squares of a chessboard uh, the the amount of rice would be more than you could kind of contain on the planet Earth. Uh, so it's it's um, it. This is the thing about exponential growth, you know. Is um, and the reason uh, we've got these lockdown frameworks in place because you know something that looks very small and looks like it's growing slowly for quite some time suddenly looks like it's growing at a at a rapid rate, and then immediately after that, the growth is uh, unstoppable. You know, so it's. This, uh, it's a very difficult concept for the human brain to kind of process this, this idea of exponential growth. It's sort of counterintuitive. I mean, I, I understand. I mean, you, your expertise is mobile. And I mean, you worked at MTN and Samsung and Nokia. But I mean, I, I know that there was the, the one story of they asked experts in the mobile arena for five years in a row what they saw as a growth rate for mobile adoption over a five-year period. And, and there were, it was very linear. It was like 10, 15%, but it would double every year. And then I'd ask again, what's it going to be? It's going to be, you know, 10, 15%, and then it will double the next year. And that happened for five years in a row. Mm. And, and so I know that you come from a, you know, obviously the, 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 the network operator, MTN and cell phone companies. And now you're in the application industry. Um, where do you see the mobile phone going? Is it is it is it going in a similar sort of way as networks, where the cost is going to be far less, and and is applications going to be the new opportunity? Um, I th I think we're already quite deeply in the middle of that. You know, if you if you look back. Um, I mean, I started in the mobile industry in 1997, which is uh, substantially before the smartphone revolution. Um, but I, I think if you, if you think about it, uh, we, we kind of reached uh, the peak of feature phones shortly after the, the smartphone became this uh, phenomenon on earth, you know, so that would have been around 2010 or so with, I think the introduction of the iPhone was somewhere around 2008. Um, and that shifted the game for smartphones. And I mean, I, I remember at the time uh, thinking I didn't really understand what all the hype was about with the iPhone because uh, there were phones being made by both Nokia and Ericsson, who were the, the real leaders at the time, uh, that were far superior to the iPhone in terms of um, uh, functionality. They could just do things like the, the Nokia communicators, as an example, were way, way um, stronger from a functionality point of view uh, than the iPhone. And then when, when I first got a hold of an iPhone and tried it out, um, I immediately, uh, within seconds, realized uh, what the significance was of the product. And it's just because of how uh, beautifully they'd integrated the user experience. And I realized this is, um, you know, and I hate using this word because it gets used incorrectly mostly, but it's a paradigm shift. So complete shifting of how we understand the domain that we're operating in. And the iPhone really did do that. But I think we've peaked with that, to be quite honest. I mean, if you look at where we've been from a, um, a smartphone uh, innovation perspective in the last few years, it's kind of the same thing every, every year, isn't it? It's slightly bigger, slightly higher resolution screen, slightly better camera, slightly better processor, slightly more RAM. So we're kind of 
stuck. And I think we're due for uh, whatever the next paradigm is. So whatever's going to shift the way we think and operate with uh, mobile technology. And going back to the point we were speaking about earlier, I think this, this should help inform how we think about this. So for example, um, given that uh, the number of transistors in a chip doubles every year, it also means you can make a chip half the size that's the same power as the same processing power um, as a chip 18 months ago. So there are these three factors that drive uh, the principles of what Moore's law was trying to explain. Powered can double every 18 months, cost kind of halves every 18 months, as you've, as, as you've mentioned. And the other thing that can happen is the size of the component can halve every 18 mm. months. And this is really amazing. And it's, uh, it, it's the reason that we end up with uh, bizarre situations where uh, a smartwatch now um, has more processing power than a supercomputer did, like a Cray supercomputer from the 1970s. It's it's insane to think about, actually. Um, but it also these are these are the mega trends that kind of drive where these things will go. So I think I think we're we're not going to see too much change and difference in the smartphone world. Um, we kind of are reaching the the limits of what is practically usable. I think the cameras might still continue to get better and, uh, you know, the screens might uh, continue to get better. One other consequence of reducing uh, the size of the transistors on the chip is that the power consumption reduces. So we might see some improvements in battery power, but we're pretty much where we're going to get to from a smartphone point of view. Now it's, now it's a shift into other mechanisms so the wearable thing is starting to gain real momentum and i think things like smart watches are starting to uh, really show value in how they're used and how and people are starting to figure out how to actually develop software for them uh, that makes them more usable and then probably one of the next big ones is uh, this idea of augmented reality uh, glasses which will become a new way of interfacing with the world from a computing perspective and i think that could possibly be the next paradigm, um, but it's quite difficult to tell uh, for now. And, and then the application environment that you asked about will probably evolve alongside that. So, you know, if you can imagine wearing a, a pair of uh, glasses that overlay information uh, into the real world while you're walking around, you know, and, and you use uh, voice control, to interface with it instead of tapping on a screen. You know, you'd be walking down the street and say, where's the closest burger place? Um, and it'll pop something up that you can see through your glasses that nobody else will be able to see. Um, and then you can ask, what's uh, what are their special deals at the moment? And it will uh, those glasses will probably then pop those up so you can see them. And then you'll say, that looks cool. Navigate me to that. And then you'll be on your way. So I think we probably head to that kind of thing. Um, and I think the way we interface with the internet, because that's what these smartphones really are, if you think about it, it's a, it's a window into the internet, um, that, will, that will probably shift to some other kind of interface. And I think the primary candidate now is most likely augmented reality glasses. Wow. Yeah, I heard about that. I, I, I heard about the glasses a couple of years ago from Google operating them. But I mean, more recently, I've I watched, I think it was a podcast. And they're speaking around these quantum computers, the one that Google's just created. And yeah. I don't know how true this is, but they, they were saying that in magnitude, far 
superior to the most powerful supercomputer developed by IBM. So that they 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 solve uh, international challenges with that. But the, apparently they they have this quantum computer set up in the Google offices. It's about the size of a fridge. And they gave it a challenge that would normally take a supercomputer several years to solve. Mm. And it took two minutes. Mm. Yeah, so this is the, the quantum supremacy thing. Um, it's, pretty, it's pretty controversial because when Google came out and stated that they'd achieved quantum supremacy and the definition for it was, uh, or is, as I understand it, roughly um, saying that, you know, our, our quantum computer can do something that a classical computer, which is what our uh, our uh, smartphones and all the way up to giant server racks and even our supercomputers, which are just uh, really uh, thousands of, of processes all kind of daisy-chained together, um, a quantum computer will do something that a classical computer could effectively never do. Uh, because the processing time would just be too long. It is it is true that they have managed to achieve this with quantum computing. However, there are, uh, I think, quite a few things that are really important to understand when it comes to quantum computing. I think, in principle, this is the next computing paradigm. But there are significant uh uh, physical challenges that need to be overcome. So if you do some reading into quantum computing architectures and the physical hardware that's required, um, one of the things that we haven't managed to get past in any meaningful way at this stage is the fact that the chip itself needs to be cooled almost to absolute zero. So this is minus 270 degrees centigrade odd, which means it's sort of impractical. <laughs> to be used in in any uh, environment Unless you're outside. living in the Arctic. <laughs> <laughs> well, even that's not cold enough, right? So it's uh, you need specialized equipment just to make these things work at all. And then also the type of calculation that Google's talking about is highly specialized. And uh, one of the biggest challenges with quantum computing is just the development of an operating system that the community at large can develop against. So we don't have an operating system for it. And the, the mathematical principles are extremely esoteric. So I think we're, we're quite a few years away uh, from quantum computers being something that would be even within reach from a consumer perspective. But sure, I agree from a, a research lab point of view and at university and um, in the, the, the highly um, uh, um, academic fields. Yes, in highly academic fields and so on, there will be some amazing things that come from quantum computing from now, but uh, we're quite a ways away from that being uh, consumer grade stuff. So, I mean, I suppose the, the next thing is that we talk about AI, machine learning, quantum computing. It's It, it all feels a bit um, uh, away from, from me. And, and I suppose what this lockdown for me has, has sort of done as well is it's brought me closer to my children and my family. And I've realized that I can operate um, within the bounds of my family fairly well. Um, but I think it's brought back the humanity in humans. Are you seeing that approach? Are you seeing that technology is shifting now into a way of connecting people and helping people? I know that, for instance, your application, is it Jux? Have I, have, uh, I, have, I, have I said it correctly? Jokes? Jukes, like a ju jukebox. Jukes. Jukes, yeah. yeah. Jukes, I had it. 
Okay, so Jukes. So I see that you've got a big program at the moment that you're rolling out throughout South Africa. Um, and, and so, I mean, what is it? The, the, the gig to earn? Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah, so that I work? Think, well, um, to, to get back to your question, I mean, I think, you know, technology is a tool. Um, and, and like a like a hammer, you know, you can give someone a hammer and they can build something with it or they can try and hit another person with it, I guess. So how we use the tool is uh, is entirely up to us. And, um, you know, these these technology platforms are very powerful and they have amazing ways of helping us connect with one another, which is is really interesting given the situation we're in. I mean, imagine how difficult the lockdowns would be without these technology platforms. It gives us a way to remain connected. However, having said that, I do agree with you that, I mean, I've had the same experience with my family. Um, you know, not having to be at the office has given me more of a, a chance to interact directly with my kids. And I think this is valuable, you know. So there's some very interesting lessons coming out of this um, that I think we should uh, take to heart, you know, and realize that, uh, you know, a hammer is a useful tool. It doesn't mean you have to carry it around all day and stare at it all day. You know, there are uh, there is balance and there are the right and wrong ways to use uh, tools. Um, but having said that, you know, we've tried to leverage our platform as effectively as possible, given the, um, the crisis that we're facing. And uh, what we realized very quickly, because, I mean, Jukes is a music streaming platform. Uh, mm. our, our entire dependency, our entire business is 100% dependent on, on musicians and artists. And, uh, of course, any artist that is operating in a live kind of uh, way, who's been playing at uh, the local pub or any venue and relies on that income as a way to sustain themselves, they've, uh, they've had their businesses collapse as a consequence of the lockdown. So we tried to mobilize very rapidly and see how we could support the artists. And what came out of it was this initiative we call Gig to Earn. And so what we do is um, part of the feature set that we have within Dukes is live video streaming, where an audience can actually uh, join in and chat in a, in a text fashion to an artist while they're actually performing. And so what we did is we set up eight live performances each night on Dukes. So every single night at the moment between 6 and 8 p.m. we have eight live performances. So there's two that run concurrently. Um, and we just pay the artists 1,500 Rand for a gig. Um, I know it's not a huge uh, amount of money, but if you're unable to earn any income at all, I think it's quite useful, you know, and our plan is to scale this up. So we've uh, we've put as much of our marketing budget as we can directly into this. And so at the moment, the 1,500 Rand is, is literally us just giving it directly to the artists. But, you know, we're appealing to other brands and saying to them, if you want to sponsor, um, get in the mix. We'll get the artists to mention you. We'll give you your brand uh, um, front of mind presence and say thank you for helping the artist community in South Africa. And um, we'll give every single cent directly to the artists. We don't want to um, uh, touch any of that cash. It's all about sustaining the, the musicians in our country so that they're, uh, they're still musicians when the lockdown ends, you know. So I, I didn't really know too much about Jukes and, and I've done some research and I see it's like, an adoption of about 46%, I think it was Thailand or which, which I know it's in Indonesia as well. I go there all the time and I see it there. I mean, it yes. is massive in yes. the, 
in, 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 in Asia. Asia. Yes. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an extremely popular uh, music uh, and entertainment streaming platform in Southeast Asia. The primary markets are the ones you've mentioned. So there's Thailand, Indonesia, um, Malaysia, Myanmar, and, and so on. Um, and this is one of 10 cents, uh, many consumer facing mobile internet products. And it's one of it's, it's our primary focus product for uh, the African continent at the moment. And I mean, I, I, because I go there all the time, I know that they love karaoke. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm a terrible singer, um, but, but <laughs> whenever I go there, I, uh, really, I somehow <laughs> always get roped into going in karaoke at some stage or another when I'm in Asia. Um, so, I mean, what, what do you think the appeal of the, of the, of the product is? Is it, is it, cause I know it's for free to certain members and it has a whole host of attributes. I mean, what, what do you, what do you guys think the, the, well, look, I mean, the, the, the music streaming environment is, is sort of commoditized, you know. I mean, the, the music libraries are controlled by the, the major labels, effectively. Um, so the catalog is relatively similar across all of these applications. So we've got the core, the core functionality in there. It's a music streaming app, the same as any other music streaming service you want, which has basically the library of all the music you could ever want on demand through your phone. But then we add these other features in the mix to try and uh, keep it more interesting and help artists to engage with their fan base more effectively, right? So like the, the gig to earn. Uh, functionality or the gig to earn program rather is is dependent on the live streaming functionality which we have built in um, and then as you say karaoke which is very popular in um, many asian territories this functionality also works for us and we've actually got a little uh, beneath the radar karaoke um, tribe that's busy building in south africa there are quite a few people that uh, do the, the karaoke thing directly on the phone and they're building some uh, little fan bases of their own you know so it's quite interesting to see which things are are uh, adopted which things are uh, people rally around and so on and of course there are you know differences in different territories in terms of what people like and what they're interested in um, but we we add these additional functionalities in to keep the, pro, uh, the, the platform fresh and give people, uh, especially fans and uh, and the customers that use our service, uh, new and uh, and interesting ways to actually engage with each other and with uh, with the musicians. Because I mean, obviously, um, Tencent's I think is it the biggest digital uh, platform in China. It's one uh, of the two biggest, well, right? Yeah, I think I think the two biggest. Um, so mm. the the two products that are are really really um, uh, extremely big in China. I think they, um, uh, you know, WeChat has uh, over a billion monthly active users in China, and How many? Uh, How over many? a billion. Uh, a billion. Over a billion, yeah. And then uh, <laughs> QQ, QQ Messenger, which is the primary product that Tencent started with. Um, I haven't looked at those figures in, in some time, but, uh, you know, from, from what I remember, um, a year ago or so, they, they had around 800 million monthly active users. So those two, those two platforms sure. are both uh, Tencent uh, platforms and they've become extremely good at, uh, delivering, uh, internet based, uh, platforms that deliver a very wide range of value. So if you look at how WeChat operates in China now, um, it literally is kind of a, 
um, the, the digital framework through which you do everything. You know, you chat to friends, you uh, share, um, you know, interesting moments of your life the same way you would in a, in a social media feed. Um, you research products that you want to buy and you buy them directly, you know, so it's a, it's an extremely, um, flexible, effective platform. And, you know, if you, if you spend time in China, then, uh, you, you literally have to be on WeChat, uh, to get things done. You know, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal platform, really an amazing success story. We had, um, Ian Williamson on the podcast and he was saying that when he goes to China now, he doesn't even take money with him. He just got his phone. He says the buskers yes. that play in the streets, they just, instead of putting out a chip, a tip bowl, they put up their phone with a QR code and everybody pays them through that. Nothing. He does not need his credit card or money for anything. He just uses his phone, obviously, through applications like WeChat. Well, it, it will be it will be WeChat. I mean, I've got friends at, uh, at Tencent in, in Shenzhen in China where uh, they've said to me they have no idea where their physical leather wallet is. They haven't touched it in, a, in you know, a year. They don't, they literally just don't use it anymore. So it's, it's amazing how integrated it's become with, uh, with daily life. So, I mean, how, how interesting is it for you to head up Tencent? You've got drugs and you've got WeChat, but I, I mean, you're exposed to the newest and latest technologies and trends. But obviously the, the, the challenge is how do then you make that relevant for both South Africa and Africa? Are you, is, is it easy to do that? Is it, is it some adjusting? How do you find it? It's, it's certainly not easy. I mean, uh, consumer internet products, uh, specifically mobile consumer internet products, growing these things uh, is really difficult, um, especially, especially when competing uh, in domains where network effect is a, is a primary consideration. You know, breaking, breaking network effect of an established platform is, it, it's incredibly difficult. Very, very, very tough. Um, and, uh, growing consumer support for, uh, mobile internet entertainment platforms is also very difficult. And I think the primary reason this is such a tough domain to operate in is because there is this unique thing that happens with mobile internet services and products. And that is, you know, uh, and we don't really think about this stuff, but when you have an update notification for an application on your phone, you push a button and uh, suddenly you've got a bunch of new functionality. So if you think about this from a competitor point of view, um, let's say I've got a product and I, I deliver this new feature, which is completely unique. None of my competitors have it, but it's not unique enough for me to, to claim ownership in any kind of intellectual property fashion. So it's just a cool feature that I've added into my product. I launch it, the population, the customer base that I have, they love this feature and it actually starts growing my user base. And a month later, my top competitor delivers the same feature and all of their customers have it literally overnight. And it's, it, it is extremely dynamic, extremely competitive. And so it's always a tough battle. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's uh, easy. It's a tough environment, but, uh, I love it because, you know, we're forced to learn on the fly, uh, all day long. And, you know, we've got a, a team locally that is very driven by that. You know, we get very excited about new developments and, uh, we love the challenge, but it's, uh, it's tough. It's a really tough environment to succeed in. 
is that, is that Africa's tough to environment or is that just generally the network effect globally? I mean, you've got people like Uber who struggled to launch in Indonesia, for instance, and, and so there's a you know more localized solution there. I think it's Gojet or... Yeah, I think in those instances, it's because the, lo the local versions see what's going on. Uh, they see Uber growing rapidly in the United States and they say, that's a great idea that would work here. They set up shop before Uber does and then they mm. establish network effects before Uber gets there. And this just highlights the, the point is uh, to topple an established player when it comes to an internet-based service in which network effects are relevant, it's extremely difficult. There's a big, there's a big sort of shift. It seems I, I read an article about the shift from now the banking industry almost being the next Google, Facebook, um, Tencent's of the world, in that they, in in a way, have have transitioned. They have done their own transformation for many years, but they've got a big network of customer base that they can offer multiple solutions to. Mm. How, what do you think of that? Uh, do you think that I banks th are going to become, because some are saying they're, you know, they're being challenged by fintech startups, mm. but it seems to me that they're, they're partnering more with the fintechs now. Yeah, I, th I think we'll probably see more of, of that partnership or buyout uh, approach because, you know, and this is, uh, this is classic uh, Clayton Christensen uh, uh, stuff, you know, the, um, I think mm. he passed away recently, but, uh, you know, yeah. this uh, innovator's dilemma. It, it, if you think about the challenge that a bank has now to, um, to kind of take up the new digital way of doing things um, versus a brand new startup. So let's say, uh, you know, for example, Bank Zero, which Michael Jordan is focused on, on launching in South Africa. Um, they can actually launch an end-to-end -end banking product with maybe a, a couple of dozen developers. They don't need any branches. They don't need any ATMs because they can cut a deal with existing ATM providers if somebody needs to draw cash. Um, and those deals, um, even if they even if they have a, a fair transaction fee that they have to pay to the banks, it's almost irrelevant because the cost of running their platform is insignificant compared to a bank. And you think about banks with their existing infrastructure, huge offices, tens of thousands of staff, ATMs, um, moving money around, which is dangerous and expensive, moving cash around, which is dangerous and expensive. Um, compared to a digital startup team where all of those components of the value chain are, are collapsed effectively. So you've got, uh, you've got developers and architecture on one end and customer on the other, and all the bits in between disappear. So the cost structures for the bits in between evaporate. And for a bank to compete with this, they would have to break apart their own value chains very aggressively and this is a dangerous difficult game to play and according to you know the way clayton christensen wrote about this in the innovators dilemma um, it's an incredibly difficult thing to do especially for people who in that environment are experts you know i, I gave a talk at a bank um, when we were focused on the wechat wallet and they asked a similar question and they said if they wanted to build a digital bank from the ground up what is what is my top advice to them 
And I said, my top advice would be <laughs> set up a separate business. Don't allow any of your executives mm. near it. Do not hire any banking mm. professionals to look after it. You give it to young entrepreneurial startup guys who, who do not know how to think about running a bank. And you give them the rules and you give them governance and oversight and that's it. And they all chuckled at me, you know, because it's so difficult to think like that. But that's the truth. You know, disruption comes mm. from people who have nothing to do with the industry they're disrupting because they're able to think about it from from a completely fresh perspective. Um, and so the, the, the idea that the banks will do this themselves, I think, is a long shot, to be honest. And it's not because the banks are incompetent. It's because that's how this works. You know, mm -hmm. uh, look at uh, the same thing happening in the automotive industry in the States, you know, Chrysler and Ford all laughing their heads off at Tesla saying that they'll be out of business in five years. And now look where they are, you know, so it, mm -hmm. uh, it's very interesting uh, to think about this because the disruptors are always the people who manage to build something from first principles. It's always the same. So, I mean, we, we're talking about some of the things that you need to thrive and i mean if people can get developers fairly cheap if they don't need this big infrastructure if they can copy other people's ideas fairly quickly and create a network effect what is going to be important for entrepreneurs to thrive in the future do you think in terms of this new technology driven transformed environment the, the same thing that's always been important it's amazing to me how easily people get lost um, in trying to figure out what's important because in the end, it's always the same thing. You know, uh, any transaction in a business is simply value exchange. It's me parting with my cash because I'm receiving value from a business. Um, if I manage to uh, receive that value and it seems like a valuable transaction to me, I'm willing to part with my cash. So this, the simple truth of it is, is um, sometimes new services do this. So up until, I don't know what, eight, eight or 10 years ago, however long ago it was that Uber launched, that wasn't an option. Now, suddenly we all understand the value. So this is a new type of value that was exposed to us. Um, however, when it comes to banking, uh, the value is pretty simple. I want an institution that I trust to hold my money and I want to be able to move my money around seamlessly. That's it. That's what it is. And that's the value. And that's the reason I give them my business. And that's the reason I allow them to take a portion of the money that I store with them uh, because they're offering that service to me. And it's always the same. It's like, can you, can you facilitate a meaningful value exchange between your business and a customer? It's always that simple. And, and we tend to really complicate these things and make them a lot more, um, a lot more messy than they need to be. Um, and sometimes I, I find, especially uh, this happens in, in bigger corporations, is when they've been running and established for many years, they start getting lost in the idea that their job is to create value for their organization. It's never that. It's always to create value for the customer. And if you're busy obsessing about creating value for your organization, in time, your organization will die because you have to create value for the customer. It's, it's always going to be, uh, it's always going to come down to that simple, simple truth. Jeff Bezos. Yes, exactly. So, so, so profound, eh? It's, it's yeah, so funny it's so you talk simple. about being disrupted though, because he, he said that 
the one thing about Amazon World Services is that for some reason, any other part of their business gets disrupted every two years if, if they come out with something new. But with Amazon World Services, it took the competition seven years because they underestimated them. They said, what's yes. a retailer now about cloud computing? <laughs> they yes. didn't see them coming. They did not yeah. see them coming. And they built well, I think the most, the most interesting thing about that story is that I don't think even Amazon saw that coming because my understanding is mm -hmm. that the, the setup of AWS was as an internal service provider. You know, They set it up for themselves to use, then thought, hey, maybe we can sell this service. And it turned into this business unexpectedly. Um, and it's amazing, you know, off, and this is why I think, um, uh, you know, being able to think from first principles uh, and do something that nobody expects to be valuable. Uh, and sometimes the reasons we think things are valuable um, are, are wrong. You know, we've got our own mm. frameworks, our own mental frameworks that we stick to because we know them and we understand them. Um, but those will be disrupted almost always, uh, just given the, the right amount of time. So, I mean, my actual next door neighbor was one of the two people that developed the AWS World Services. Mm. And um, I think they were left to their own devices in many ways to to set things up. But it's amazing what that what gets created in South Africa. I mean, we we met each other briefly at Africa Tech Week, and we had Salim there, and and we see huge opportunities in developing the the technology sector startups big corporates in south africa and throughout africa are you still seeing that are you still seeing post covid are you seeing an explosion in tech companies do you think that you know anything's changed will it go back to normal will we see an acceleration in terms of tech companies and, and companies pivoting especially with things like 5g um, I think that I I don't see us going back to the same kind of normal. I think a lot of a lot of things will drift back to uh, pretty much the way they used to be, even if it takes a couple of years. You know, um, I think people sitting at a restaurant uh, and having a chat over over a meal is uh, is something. There's something deeply human about it, and I think that that kind of thing will definitely come back. But I, I think that. This will, this event, this global event will also push people in businesses to rethink the way that they think about everything. Because I think many of us are surprised at how easy it's actually been to work digitally. You know, we, this idea of working from home has been adopted by a few companies around the world. Now suddenly we're all forced to do that. Um, and I think there was a lot of fear and a lot of uh, terror over being forced to do this, thinking it's not going to work. We can't do this. We It's going to destroy our productivity. And look, let's be clear. I mean, productivity has been disrupted, but we're figuring it out as we go. And we're finding new ways to do things. We're finding ways to help each other. We're finding new ways to schedule. We're doing all the things that we need to do to make sure that our businesses can work. Um, so I think that we will see a shift. Uh, for sure, where any component of your business that is able to be digitized will be digitized because that's being forced right now. And then the question is, will people go back to the way they used to do this? Like, you know, we've been talking about, as a, as a prime example, we've been talking about paperless offices for years and we've never really gotten close. Now, suddenly, 
you know, the idea of me signing a physical document and handing it to a lawyer is irrelevant. I can't do it. I literally cannot do it. So now we are forced to adopt digital signatures and sending documents digitally. So suddenly we're all using less paper and suddenly we're much closer to a paperless office uh, not because of conscious effort on our part, but because of necessity. And so these changes will change things. They will create new opportunities for sure. But specific things will go back to, uh, you know, in inverted commas, normal, uh, very close mm -hmm. to the way they used to be. And this is going to be uh, very much dependent on the particular business vertical. So I think if we, you could you could discuss um, multiple uh, types of businesses here and come to a completely different conclusion with each of them. Mm. So, and, and I mean, do you see like um, Tencent, Naspers, WeChat, do you see an explosion of, you know, more startups, uh, more entrepreneurs driving technology-driven solutions? Do you, do you see Africa sort of taking on a uh, China-based technology revolution? Um, I think that I think the momentum toward that was there before the the coronavirus crisis. Um, you know, there's been a, a, very, a very steady move toward online services. There's been a steady increase in adoption for uh, e-commerce, as an example. And this is a global phenomenon. It's not. Uh, it's got nothing to do with Africa or anywhere else. And I think what this crisis has done is it's it's uh, really accelerated some of these things. Um, so I, I don't expect it will change in the long run. Uh, we might see this this particular moment in history as a little acceleration moment, um, but those trends were there before, and um, you know I think I think both uh, Tencent and Aspis are extremely well positioned with those trends. And, and I mean, with, with things like education, I mean, do you yeah. do you see? Who is it? Um... One of the schools, Cura, I think they've they've got a new school just for techs in Cape Town. So they're they're trying to teach young people new skills mm. instead of someone like yourself teaching yourself through things like the Sinclair. <laughs> how do we get how do we get more young people adapting to this technology that's available? Um, uh, look in South Africa, that's quite complicated because we do have this um, uh, disparity in earnings right so you know only a, a small sector of the population really would have access to you know the technology just because of economic factors um, but but more broadly from a, an international point of view i think the move toward that has already started you know this uh, online edtech environment is an area of of interest in aspers um, you know the, they've uh, um, invested uh, in a couple of edtech ed startups um, and some bigger platforms. And, you know, there's already been some interesting shifts happening. And this is uh, prior to the crisis, uh, uh, once again, um, interesting shifts toward university courses being completed online, diplomas being um, issued online with online learning courses and so on. So once again, I think these trends were already in play and this may just accelerate some of them um, and then just one one last comment on this which i think uh, to me has been quite funny the one thing i have seen which uh, i love i absolutely love this 
um, is seeing uh, seeing how teachers are being taught by the students <laughs> with the really? online classes. Yes, it's so funny because I think a lot of teachers, um, mm -hmm. especially the more old school teachers, they've never done a video conference before. And you're seeing kids having to teach the teachers how to use the technology that they're <laughs> going to teach them with, which is beautiful. <laughs> I love it. So, I mean, I think the other thing that we saw is last year, we saw a lot of people coming to Africa. Like I know Jack Dorsey was threatening to come here for three months. That's probably not going to happen any longer. But there was this, this, this sort of influx of internationally astute uh, tech icons coming to Africa and, and looking at what we have to offer. I mean, a lot of people say that, you know, we've got a very young um Population, that's one of the attractions. I mean, what's the attraction for Africa and South Africa for entrepreneurs? Well, I, I personally, my view, I mean, my view is probably skewed. You know, I've, I'm, uh, I've, I've, I was born in South Africa and I've lived here my entire life. I've, I've always been fascinated by technology and loved it. Um, and through the, the last seven years in my journey with, uh, with Tencent, I've spent a large amount of time in many countries in Africa and, um, you know, there is such a hunger. Uh, there's an entrepreneurial hunger in Africa that's really quite something. Uh, and you can only really feel it when you spend time at these co-working hubs and things like this in, in uh, Nairobi and, and Lagos and, and all these other places. And seeing uh, the, the momentum behind these entrepreneurs is really, really powerful. So that's the first component. I think the hunger is there. The second component is, and I think this can't be overstated, is most Africans have had their very first experience of the internet ever through a mobile phone. They are, you know, uh, Facebook went through this program a couple of years ago uh, saying that they were going to become mobile first. Most Western companies, most European companies, uh, and this is true even with, uh, with Tencent, um, and, and it's, it's part of the reason WeChat won out. It was developed for mobile only. I mean, it was a mobile first, mobile focused product but africans are mobile natives this is the way that they are used to interacting with the internet most africans will probably not use a desktop computer because it will be unnecessary their way of interacting with the internet is mobile and that opens up this crazy amount of opportunity because when you come from a, an old computing paradigm where you've got a, a big box plugged into the power uh, sitting at a desk, which may or may not be connected to the internet, you have a frame of reference for what a computer is. Uh, but the frame of reference for what computing is uh, for the average African is that it's always mobile, that it's always connected, that it always knows where you are, that it always has a camera attached to it. And just starting off from this base um, is, a, is a superpower. So that's the second part. The third component, which I think is, is equally as important, is if you think about the digitization of businesses um, and what we discussed earlier around banking, where you're collapsing components of the value chain in between, if you establish, and so the, the, the story of a digital bank is, is really informative here, because if you're going to start a digital bank, um, you don't need to worry about infrastructure. You don't need to worry about moving cash around. You don't need to worry about buildings with staff in them. You don't need to worry about building and setting up ATMs and all the security that goes along with that. You just build a mobile app. And so the cost of deploying a new service is dramatically lower 
the mechanisms for adopting a new service are dramatically lower and the way that your service can spread and be used is dramatically lower. The opportunity in Africa is almost entirely centered around just this single concept in my mind, and that is there is no infrastructure in Africa for the most part. Most infrastructure is missing. There aren't many banks. Most people don't have credit cards. Uh, most people don't have bank accounts. So in, in many instances, the very first experience that people will have of a technology or of a, a new type of business will be through their phone. And everybody's geared for it. Everybody's ready for it. And of course, uh, we know that uh, deploying services on mobile is this ultra rapid thing. You can do it very quickly um, and you can build audience very rapidly. So I think the opportunity in Africa is staggering. It's absolutely staggering. Um, and, and, you know, the interest in Africa that you're, you're talking about, I, I've seen that ramp up myself. I've seen the interest uh, continue to grow over the last couple of years. And I think that there is uh, real potential for digital services on the continent. And, that, and we'll see that. We'll see that growing and evolving very rapidly over the coming years. I mean, the analogy that I saw was, was Gary Vee at Web Summit, and he talked around how first people owned radio stations and the way of communicating and getting our attention. And then it moved to TV. And I remember going the first time to America. Where was it? From New Zealand, I think. And we were in a hotel at Disneyland and, and there was something like, I don't know, 200 channels. And I thought this was crazy. But now you're moving to what he believes is the most important is the mobile phone. The mobile phone captures everybody's attention all the time. Yes. And it's about putting your program, putting your bit of opportunities on the phone now. The phone is going to be the mechanism. Is that, is that, I mean, we were talking about glasses earlier, but is it still going to be linked to the phone then? I would imagine so, yes. Uh, I mean, the, the you know, the amount of processing power you could stick in a pair of uh, augmented reality glasses is probably limited for, for the next couple of years at least. Um, mm. So it will, it will almost certainly be linked to uh, the device in your pocket. And that, I mean, you know, the phones we have now are, are uh, supercomputer grade from only a few years ago. So uh, they'll, they'll have the power to do whatever it is that's needed. And I think the next thing which is interesting to me is this whole 5G. I mean, the way it was explained to me, it was something like, if you think 4G is fast, it was explained like this. It was like the, the, the width of a, a pencil versus a, a meter in diameter uh, tube. That That's a sort of bandwidth. It's like 100 times faster yeah. than, than 4G. But a lot of people are scared. Um, what's your take on this for 5G? You know, I think this uh, um, general public fear of new radio technologies has been a thing uh, for quite some time now. You know, I've been uh, very close to the technology that makes cell phones work for for uh, going on uh, 23 years now, you know, and um, I've seen this cycle repeat itself. You know, there was fear when... Uh, GPRS came out, uh, there was fear when 3G came out, there was fear when 4G came out. And I think the fear is centered on the idea that many of the, of the frequencies that are used uh, for these technologies um, are similar to frequencies that do things that we wouldn't want to have done to our bodies. So for example, um, you know, Wi-Fi hotspots work at a similar frequency to a microwave oven. 
So why aren't we all freaking out and panicking about Wi-Fi hotspots? And the answer is because they're not working at a thousand watts like a microwave oven is. So they're not hurting you. <laughs> and I think, you know, the, the uh, GSM uh, regulatory bodies are highly, uh, highly regulated. Um, this technology is tested very well. Um, and I think the conducive. I mean, there's been a lot of studies, right? I mean, yes, yeah, absolutely. So, look, I mean, um, uh, you know, admittedly, I haven't been focused on on the actual uh, core technologies of these um, of these developments in in recent uh, years. So I don't really, yeah. I don't even know which particular frequency ranges 5G operates at, uh, as an example. But I have an idea yeah. of higher, uh, yeah. what the what the latency and bandwidth. Um, uh, uh, advances mean in terms of functionality. And I think we will see some incredible changes in what is possible technologically because of, uh, because of these technologies. Um, and then of it's course, things there... like holograms and, and having meetings, right? It's going to be, it's going to be like, it's the person's right in front of you because the technology can deliver such high quality experiences. It's going to be immersive. Mm -hmm. Well, there are other there are other bits of technology that would be required to make something like a hologram work, of course. Um, but the bandwidth will be there to do that if the other bits of technology are are able to uh, to deliver what's what's needed. So that's interesting. And I mean, going back a little bit to your career, um, I mean, there's a philosophy in like agile, which is fail fast, test and measure, and improve. You, I mean, you got into the startup environment and had some challenges, and, and I'm so with all of us. What are the, what are the sort of learnings that you've learned from doing business in South Africa or Africa? That that principles that you now work with. I think the, the look the most important thing is to is to keep seeking. Um, you know, to me, it's uh, the, this is I think. Probably the most important thing that I've I've done in, throughout my career, you know, and I mean I, I've I've moved uh, in in interesting ways in my career. You know, I was a I was a draftsman before I got into the cellular industry, but even then I was seeking, um, you know, so finding finding the technology shortcuts. Like, how are other people doing this? Is there something I'm missing? Constantly doubt yourself. Constantly believe that there's a better way to do what you're trying to do. Constantly expect. Um, that there is a better way and you must find it um, and and assume that you know nothing because the truth of the, the the truth of the matter is is if you're operating in a business that is at the cutting edge it is uncharted territory by by definition nobody knows how it's supposed to work and that's where all the opportunity lies so the thing I would be what I've spent my entire career doing is, is hunt for the cutting edge. Find out where in whatever your industry is, find what the cutting edge is. Find out who are the people that are really, really leading the charge and changing the way things happen and go and live there. Live at the cutting edge because uh, at the cutting edge, nobody knows what the next step looks like and that spells opportunity. It's a bit like post-COVID. Um, yes. post lockdown, no one, no yes. one, no, everybody's worried, everybody's fearful and anxious. I mean, I mean, what advice do you have for people who are in business who, who don't know what to do, um, whose businesses have maybe failed or are failing? I mean, it, there's millions of entrepreneurs in Africa. What would your, be your advice for them right now? 
it's it's so difficult this i mean it's unprecedented times and there's certain types of businesses that um you know even trying to plan a recovery path would be incredibly difficult but mm. i think the advice would be the same as what i've just said which is mm. uh, you know uh, this this event this global event constitutes a shift change in the way many things will work so if your business has failed and there is no way for you to recover it from now i would start looking at what are the things that have fundamentally changed and as we move out of the lockdown and as we move out of the crisis focus there and find the opportunities because i think the one thing that will be absolutely for sure uh, the, the, the truth of the matter is, is as we move out of this, there will be a mega level of opportunity because everybody's keen to do things in a new way. Things need to be rebuilt. And in the same as when a forest burns down, you see the greenery popping up. It gives uh, plants, uh, new types of plants, uh, an opportunity for growth. The same thing is happening right now. And I mean, I, my heart bleeds for uh, the businesses that are under pressure right now it's extremely tough times it's very difficult out there but you know if, if people can just hang on through this and, and see the opportunity on the other side i think the amount of opportunity is going to be staggering and i mean obviously you you're very knowledgeable you're very wise i mean do you have anybody any mentors that you sort of look up or, or leaders in your career that you thought made a big impact and where you are today um for, for sure but I, I i don't think it's possible for me to isolate particular names um what i've found with myself is that my uh, the the people that i've looked up to have shifted dramatically over the years um but that's a function of of my personality you know i'm very easily distracted i'm very easily bored um i need new information all the time otherwise i feel like i'm i'm uh, i'm floundering uh, so i've shifted the people that i've i've looked to and focused on uh, over the years but there is one person who maybe for the last 10 years has been quite consistent and a super controversial character i wish it was a mentor of mine or maybe i don't given the the, the reports of what his personality can be like but i think elon musk is a is an absolutely mind-bending individual you know the the fact that he can do what he does is astounding to me you know he's mm. he's redefining multiple industries simultaneously which is it's completely unprecedented um, and the and the reason I mentioned earlier in our discussion is this uh, idea of first principle thinking. This is his go-to with everything, and I've I've bought into this concept uh, in every way that I possibly can in my personal life, in my own way of thinking about what the future holds, and in the way that I I, I try to lead um, the team of people that I'm very privileged to lead at Tencent Africa Services, um, and that is any problem you face think about it from first principles and the reason this is so powerful is you know if if you're if you've been running a, a car manufacturing plant for 20 years you have established ways of doing things you've got machines that have been built and paid for that do very specific things and the idea of throwing those all out and starting fresh is inconceivable but in many ways that is the best thing that can be done because the technologies that are available now are radically different to the technologies that were available 20 years ago. 
And so if you built something now, you wouldn't build it the same at all. It would be completely different because you would be using a different tool set. And this is what first principle thinking is really about. It's about if I started this from scratch, and this is the reason I gave the advice to the bankers, get rid of the experts, mm. you know, find people who know nothing about your environment, give them the tools and say, how would you do this? This is what first principle thinking is about. And this is the reason, um, you know, as, as ridiculous as he can be at times, um, I'm completely inspired and uh, in awe of what uh, Elon Musk is capable of achieving. And I think it's because he's got this really, really uncompromising way of thinking about things from first principles at every single step of every, uh, every business opportunity and uh, every business decision, uh, decision that he makes. And I think it's, uh, it's a really, really powerful uh, capability that he has. And you're right. I mean, I also researched it quite a bit, but I, I believe you got it from the guys at Google. But, uh, but it's amazing that you've, you're implementing it because I read about it and I, and I thought, wow, this is quite interesting. But I actually found it quite hard to adopt because I don't think there's many examples of people who give examples of what they would do. Um, but but it's almost um, it's like burning the ship, right? It's like there's no escape. We've got to move forward. <laughs> look, look, that's, get the, that's past, the reason it's the future. Exactly. That's the reason it's hard to do because you've got to burn the ships and it takes courage. It's, uh, but, but the I thing you've got to I'll realize the word is courageous. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Because, uh, but, but the thing you've got to realize is, you know, look at what we're going through globally now. Like this is a really, really hectic, difficult change for all of us. You know, six months ago, if someone had suggested you need to force all your staff to go work from home because you're going to save money by doing it, and this is a mechanism you can use to save your business, mostly people would refuse because it, it constitutes a burning of the ships in some other way in their mind. They wouldn't be able to make the mental leap. Now you're forced to do it. And, and amazingly, you just cope. You know, now that you're forced to do something, you suddenly find the way. We're incredibly adaptable. Uh, we're incredibly resourceful as people, uh, but sometimes we have to force ourselves beyond what we think is not possible uh, in order to find, in order to find that, you know. Jump off that bridge. It seems to me yeah. that the challenge, we all knew that technology was there and we knew what we had to do. We've been doing the future of HR for a couple of years now. <laughs> so mm -hmm. the mindset was there and there's organizations like Google's, you know, you know Tesla doing things. But it was almost like a control issue. People didn't want to lose that sense of control. Or maybe the fact is that they knew they wouldn't be in control when they're testing out new things. And so that maybe drew some fear to them. Um, yeah. Just shifting a bit now to China and, and South Africa, um, there seems to be some alignment to South Africa and China for many reasons. But, I mean, their, their ability to adapt to technology is probably more advanced than the states um, and their drive to encourage entrepreneurs there. Do you see that the rest of Africa is going to pull South Africa into more, becoming more entrepreneurial? Do you think South Africa is driving the entrepreneurial space? Where, where are you seeing the, the differences and similarities? Um, I, I don't think South Africa is driving entrepreneurial developments in Africa. I mean, the, the, the level of, of uh, uh, innovation and entrepreneurial spirit in Africa is pretty staggering. You know, I mean, given, 
you know, given that uh, there is a very, very, very uh, low-grade level of infrastructure that's available to in, in most countries in Africa, um, some of the solutions that are that are um, innovated out are, are really astonishing. And to be quite frank, I mean, uh, if, if you put uh, if you put a room full of Nigerian entrepreneurs uh, versus a room of South African entrepreneurs, I put my money on the Nigerians every single time. They're they're aggressive, they're hungry, they're smart, um, and they're more driven as entrepreneurs than South Africans. I think the, the problem we have in South Africa is um, we have this ownership issue. You know, so everyone talks about the next Silicon Valley and what it would be. Um, and people seem to miss the point that Silicon Valley is not a place. It's a, it's a mindset, actually. And if you've spent any time in San Francisco, you'll know the, the fundamental difference is you can run into random strangers at a bar and they'll just tell you what they're working on. They'll tell you their business idea and ask you what you think of it. South Africans don't do this. We're terrified that someone's going to steal our idea, which is ridiculous. That's not how this works. You know, so it's about open collaboration and the spirit of collaboration. This is the key thing that makes uh, Silicon Valley, um, you know, conceptually what it is. And I've seen this in Nigeria. Um, and I think, I don't think South Africa is leading the charge. I think we have access to, to uh, greater resources. I think we have access to more stable infrastructure and this should give us an advantage, but I wouldn't bet that this is the advantage that helps us win. Sure. So, I mean, is there things that you think we should be, I mean, is there things that um, we should be doing to I think there's a lot of things that are already in play. You know, I've seen a lot more of these kind of um, collaborative hubs popping up. Um, and I'm seeing more and more. I, I have seen an attitude shift in the last couple of years, I have to say. Um, you know, and, and I think it's sometimes as simple as, you know, when somebody comes to you and says, I've got this business idea that I want to ask your opinion on, um, you know, be open. Uh, offer to help but then when they say will you sign my nda just say no no i'm not <laughs> signing it why would why would you want me to do that i'm you know i'm offering my time to you to help you and help your business i want to stimulate entrepreneurship i want startups to succeed i want this environment to grow in south africa i'm not interested in stealing your idea you know and if you're not willing to talk to me about it then don't but uh i'm willing to talk to you about it so be open to helping each other um, but but we need to let go of this idea that we can own an idea. It's uh, and I realize patents are a thing and uh, and so on. So I hope I don't get into some weird debate with people about this. But what I'm what I'm trying to get at is you know ideas are easy, execution is hard, and mm -hmm. and uh, we need to be more open with our ideas. We need to help each other more. We need to be more collaborative. This is the bottom bottom line. And does that come from school? Do we have to change that culture? from a young age, do you think? Do you think it's about, like I see my children at their most entrepreneurial when they're at a cake sale for the school and they're making something mm. and working with teams of people and selling something they're trading. Is it is it more about that? Um, how do you see us sharing more ideas? Because maybe that's the problem is people are scared to share ideas. Yes. I don't know how to change it, you know, and I'm not really sure I understand the underlying mechanisms of why why this seems to be a thing that's prevalent with South African entrepreneurs, but I've, I've seen it uh, quite often. 
Um, and I mean, I've had both responses, right? So uh, people come into me and I'll and they'll say, "Will you sign my NDA?" And I'll just say, "I'm not. No, I'm not doing that." Um, you know, they, they need to understand. <laughs> people need to understand there's risk on both sides with an NDA. You know, if I don't know what I'm signing up to not disclose, I'm not signing it because. You know, if your concept turns out to be something that I've been working on for six months internally with my team, you suddenly have leverage over me, which is not the way collaboration works, you know. So just talk, just talk to each other. And, you know, every now and then, you know, you're going to get someone who probably tries to take advantage or whatever. But then, you know, we, we're a small community in South Africa. We'll filter people like that out very quickly. We just, once we are comfortable talking to each other, we'll figure out who the bad actors are and we'll just, um, we'll just exclude them from the community and then uh, things will change, you know. So it, it takes a little, a little leap of faith and a little more trust. But I think we've got it, you know, we've got a, a very entrepreneurial uh, attitude in South Africa and we've got a, a hunger for it and we've got opportunity for it. So I think the potential is certainly there. We just need to trust a little more. And, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's um, it's working together to solve our challenges, which mm. um, I think we need to do. And is there any books that you're reading at the moment um, that, that have sort of captured your imagination? Um, you know, it's uh, it's quite an odd thing because I got into a habit of uh, of uh, doing audiobooks with my commute because I, I live in Somerset West and I work in Cape Town. So I'm I'm one of those guys spending two, three hours a day in traffic. Um, and I was doing the audiobook thing every day. So I haven't read anything for two months, <laughs> which is really bad. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm having to figure out how to shift my habits into uh, thinking about uh, thinking about that, but the book that I have been uh, uh, the most recent book that I've been reading is uh, the Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday, um, and I like I like it very much considering the uh, the situation we're in. Just thinking about uh, how blessed we actually are in our lives and how privileged we are to have what we have, and uh, you know, remind myself uh, very often these days about uh, the difficulty that people in this country are facing. Um, and it, it helps to focus uh, one's thinking, you know. So part of our initiative with the Gig to Earn campaign, as an example, is being having a high level of awareness of these things and realizing that, you know, I'm in a very fortunate position because my type of business is relatively safe uh, from the crisis. I don't think anybody's completely safe, but we're relatively safe. Um, and and realizing that, uh, you know, if we are going to move forward with the spirit of helping one another and of being more collaborative, I need to use the resources and thinking that are available to me to, to help as much as possible. And uh, I think a book like The Daily Stoic, which is just a, a very brief daily message, uh, which is basically a, a repurposing of uh, one of the old Stoic philosophers' comments. It's a, a paragraph or two each day. Um, and it just helps uh, helps me to stay grounded and uh, remember that uh, you know we have a responsibility to to appreciate what we've got and look out look out for each other. Well, look, I, I know that um, you've always been very helpful with with Africa Tech Week and offering your help, and you came to meet us. But I mean, I look at what you're doing with Jux, and I and, and we have a partnership with Standard Bank for our Top Woman program, and we moved from doing 
live events for like 800 women and awards, we're going to be doing a virtual event this year. And one of the amazing opportunities that we saw was that um, they, they have a partnership as well, or sponsor the Joy of Jazz. And so he suggested that they, in the breaks in the conference, that we bring some of the artists into um, the conference, the summit, the virtual summit and awards. But um, we'd be honored to, you know, possibly partner with you as well and see how we can help some of your artists in our different platforms throughout the year. So maybe there's an opportunity to, to partner and collaborate ourselves. But um, it was amazing to speak to you. I think we got through so much um, and we're, we're really honored to have you on the show. Um, it'd be great to catch up soon again, but, but thank you so much, Brett. No, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. It's been a really interesting, great chat. I appreciate you inviting me.